Well, hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with Peter Switzer. On this week's show, I talk to a US business coach and business thinker, the legendary Jay Abraham. I first interviewed Jay in 1994, and his lessons he taught me I use today, and I will never forget. His interview is something anyone who really wants to lift their game, um, this is the guy you should listen to. And next, we talk to the CEO and co-founder of Life360, a US company listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, uh, which recently recruited Mark Zuckerberg's sister, Randy, who was a former executive of Facebook. This news led to a big spike in the share price of Life360. Well, joining me now is one of the best business minds in the world, a guy who I've been talking to since the early 1990s, has a, had a very big impact on me and lots of the businesses in Australia who he's uh, talked to over the years. Jay Abraham, thanks for joining us. Oh, come on, my pleasure, what a privilege. Jay, um, many years ago, um, a story you shared with me was about, and I'm, I'm sure you've had so many stories, I'm gonna have to remind you of this, but it won't take you long to, to pick up on it. I think it was a, a, a business owner in Oklahoma or someplace like that. And you, you asked him about what is the, the typical sale that he would do uh, and, and what was the kind of you know, profit he would make per sale. And you then asked him what he was paying his salespeople and I think he was paying a pretty small margin on the, on the, uh, for the salespeople for generating sales. I think you asked him what was the most important sale and uh, he, he uh, kind of thought about it for a moment and said to you, well, well, probably the first one because after I get the first one, I get a whole series of sales after that. And then you shocked me and, and you shocked a lot of audience, audiences who I've shared the story with. I said, well, why don't you pay your salesman 100% of the first sale? Uh, do you remember that story? I do. I, I do. And it's, it's very, it was a really powerful distinction, we, we, we showed that person that every time a salesperson created a new buyer for his company, that buyer was worth $2,800 in profit to that, to the owner and his brother over a three-year period. And they were only paying the salesperson 10% of, of each sale. And they were only making about $20 a profit on each sale. And it wasn't very incentivizing to them to want to generate new buyers because it wasn't that profitable. And we showed the owners, if you make it 10 times more highly motivating to the salespeople to get you those first buyers, you're going to make 90% of all the future sales. And there were $2,800 worth of ongoing profit for them. They never looked at it like that. They did it and sales went up five times because the salespeople, instead of getting 10% on the first sale, got 100, which was 10 times more incentive to open up new accounts. Okay, so when I've shared this story with the many audiences I've spoken to over the years and giving you the due plug you deserved as well, Jay, some, Thank people, you. some people have come up to me and said, well, you know, I, I could never give away 100% of the, of the, of the first sale. But the interesting one guy said, I could do 50% of the first sale, and if that salesperson brought a tenth one in, I'll give them the other 50%. So he said, by, by thinking about what you suggested, I've now worked out a way to keep the salesperson looking after that customer for a longer period of time. And what I loved about that was that the, the, the mere planting of the seed that you gave me yes. led to a whole lot of innovative strategies in the minds of entrepreneurs when they're given that encouragement. And I think that's the true value of someone like you when, when an entrepreneur gets to hear what you have to say. No, that's very, that's very kind. Uh, yeah, I think that, that I have tried to define my life on getting people to think very differently about the, the relationship they have with their market and how to make that relationship, first of all, a lot more responsive coming in, second of all, a lot more profitable all the way through, and third of all, last a lot longer, and then fourth of all, produce lots more referrals, word of mouth. And, and, and when I put it all together, it multiplies, you know, it, it's by orders of magnitude, 
what they can make profit-wise and also asset-wise out of the business. Hmm. Well, so what I, I figure you can do, and I've seen and I've done it myself as a consequence of hanging out with people like you and Brian Tracy and John Maxwell and people like that, and I've been lucky to, to be able to yeah, effectively pay great. to hang out with those sorts of people. The, the value is that you change the mindset of where an entrepreneur or business owner is one day. And also, the same applies to anyone trying to build their, their corporate career. You change their mindset so they think differently. So can you tell us what you think is the traditional mindset that might produce okay results compared to the, the mindset that produces yes, sure. really great <clears throat> results? Well, I think it's, it's, there's, there's a couple of different parallel factors. One is status quo thinking. Most people in an industry pretty much do the same thing everybody in the industry does the same way. They're just a little bit better or a little bit worth, worse because all they have as a reference example is what they either have experienced if they've been in it all their life or what they've observed. And they, they erroneously think that is the highest and best way that is available to do it. It very rarely is. Number two, they tend to be transactional. They tend to be more focused on the moment. They are playing a short game, not a long. They don't look at, we were talking right before <clears throat> you started this recording about the difference between a two-dimensional and a three-dimensional thinker. And I'll share that real quickly. Most, I'll call them entrepreneurs, but I'll delineate because they're not even really entrepreneurs. Most business owners are two-dimensional thinkers. And by that, I mean, literally, they're thinking in only the moment. They see revenue, transactionally, minus expense, equals profit. A three-dimensional thinker looks at that, but also is much more focused on what the continuous yield that that asset called a buyer, a client, a customer, a patient is worth to them over whatever the current usable period of time that that buyer is going to be uh, you know be uh, paying and then they try to think of how they can extend the value the lifetime value that's worth uh, a you know a typical uh, literally a typical business owner is not about really the experience the the true value they are creating above and beyond the maddening crowd they're about just doing what is necessary to get the transaction. A, 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 a non-linear thinker is looking, okay, how can I make a significant difference? How can I fill a void that doesn't uh, isn't being filled? How can I add a lot more to the experience, a lot more protection, a lot more, you know, a lot more uh, advantage, a lot more profit, whatever it is to the other side. The the typical business owner is approaching the revenue generation from one single activity, whatever is normally the easiest. It can be Facebook, it can be a sales force, it can be just, you know, uh, a retail facility where they just happen to capitalize on uh, on the, 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 the traffic that comes through it. A true nonlinear entrepreneur is creating multiple pillars of, of access. They're doing six or eight different things at the same time to penetrate the market from as many vantage points and access vehicles as possible. A, a nonlinear entrepreneur works on the geometry of the business. He or she is always looking at how to get actually at least exponential profit growth if not beyond exponential, and surprisingly, you can go five gradients performance-wise above exponential, they realize that the same effort or less, the same time or less, the same capital or less, the same human capital people, the same opportunity cost can produce a lot more yield if they do things a different way. They, that the nonlinear entrepreneur understands variability. You say something one way, either as a salesperson, in an ad, landing page, email, it produces X. You change variables, headlines, propositions, risk reversal, calls to action, bonuses, and it can double, redouble, redouble again 
the result that vehicle produces and they know to experiment and test. I can go on and on, mm. but it's night and day. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and, and as I was listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I think Elon Musk might be a third dimensional, non-linear. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he's playing a long game and he's playing it masterfully. Mm. And most people don't. I mean, they're thinking, they're operating in a totally different uh I mean, their mental Dimension. models, different, their mindset, everything is different. Yeah. As I was listening to you, I also um, recalled probably the hardest guy I ever interviewed, uh, and only because he's probably the smartest guy I ever interviewed, and that was Edward de Bono. And, uh, and I remember as an interviewer, there's nothing more um, that generates insecurity, uh, Jay, is when you're asking great questions, you're not necessarily understanding the answers. Yes. And, uh, and De Bono is so smart, but the, the, the bottom line is, and he told that famous joke of his about the, the grizzly bear uh, and the two young boys without any shoes on and one panics and puts, starts putting his running shoes and the other kid says, well, what are you doing that for? You'll never outrun a grizzly bear anyway. And he, and he made the point that the really great performers, like the Elon Musk and the Richard Bransons and people like that, they think outside the square. And when you talk about linear and nonlinear, the nonlinear uh, entrepreneur is thinking outside the square. Now, yes. now, I knew you'd agree with me, but the, the hardest bit for people listening to this is how do you have the guts to think outside the square? Because it takes risk, doesn't it? it, it actually, it doesn't. It takes belief in, in the fact that there are higher and better alternatives and possibilities and uh, applications, but really it, it's today you can test almost any assumption very easily and very safely, but it takes the willingness to constantly be either an experimenter, a, a um, what I call it, a, a, a scientist of sorts challenging yourself and your precepts, but it's the ultimate growth. It really is based on physics, the, the, the laws of physics. You either expand or you contract. I think it was um, Peter Drucker who said, and I'm gonna paraphrase, it's not gonna be as, as masterful as he said it, but he said, your goal in life or in business, excuse me, is to constantly be working to make your products, your service, your business, your business model obsolete and you can rest assured that if you're not willing to do it, your competitors are willing to do it to you and for you. Mm, yeah, exactly right. But I, I guess in, in many ways, I do think that there are those people who are really stuck in their ways, in the, the, the transactional view of their relationship with their customer. To go from there to say, well, like for example, the, the guy who you, you encourage to pay 100% of the first sale, he needed, in many ways to be led. And, and I thought, you know, I thought you being such an astute promoter of the great stuff you do, you might say, well, by having a business coach or a, or a marketing guru or someone who actually forces you to think outside the square is one way of doing it. Yes. No, no, I mean, well, we did a lot of work a couple of years ago on the concept of greatness because I was fascinated mm. in the fact that Every human being, I believe, inherently has within himself or herself the desire to be great in every facet of their being. They want to be great as uh, if they're an entrepreneur, as a entrepreneur, as a as as a money maker, as a leader, as a contributor societally. They want to be great as a husband, father, mother, lover, friend, parent. They want to be great uh, in how they feel and look, and yet something like 2% ever hit greatness levels in any, not as opposed to all of those categories that I wanted to know why. And, and it goes to your your uh, your comment. Number one, the reason is that they don't even have a clue what greatness is supposed to look like, feel like, express like, and be validated like in any of those various areas I just uh, identified, business, leadership, entrepreneurship, uh, parenting, love, uh, a friendship, uh, any of those things. Number two, if they figure out what it's supposed to look like, they don't have a, 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 a clue where they are against that. Number three, if they do that far, they don't know how to get from here to there in any of these categories. 
Number four, if I think it's four, if they get that far the first time they try to move from wherever they are in any of those categories, let alone all of them, to a higher place, they usually do terrible because the first time you try anything different, you do terrible. And it's like a, a child learning to walk, talk, uh, pee, poop, uh, eat, uh, you ride a bike. The first time they're going to do terrible and they need someone to hold them. Uh, first of all, believe in them, champion them, encourage them and really hold them to a higher standard. And you need a coach or you need a mentor or you need a masterful thinking partner. And without it, I mean, it's very hard to transform yourself. People think that it's easy. You read a book or you go to a seminar, you, you know, you do some, you know, some, uh, you know, cathartic or, 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 or epiphany type of experience and forevermore you redefine. It can liberate awareness, but it's not going to precipitate competence and proficiency. You need somebody to really to keep you focused and encourage you to constantly progress because most people, when they try to transcend wherever they are in any aspect of their life or business, they're not going to do it massively. We don't just go, I mean, it's an anomaly. It's a freak who can go out and be great at anything that they've never done before. And if they're trying to do five or six elements, you know, entrepreneurship, marketing, selling, positioning, managing, uh, value creating, being a great husband or a friend or lover, significant other or parent, or get themselves in great shape or be a contributor to society, they're gonna do terrible at most of those the first time they try. Jay, when you go online with this, uh, this conference, what's gonna be the, the main guts of your message? Well, I think it's always been pretty much the same, that it, you're the one that has committed your life, your, your hopes, your dreams, your sense of, of, of financial, psychic fulfillment, enrichment, your, your, your self-esteem, your purpose uh, to this, this uh, vehicle called your business. It's consuming and will consume the largest part of your waking life. You owe it to yourself and if you really have a vehicle that can create greater value to the marketplace to get the very most you can out of everything you do, not just in the moment, but for the long haul and the odds are very high, you're not doing that now. So you've got to question, challenge, uh, do some self-evaluating about what you could be doing right now with what you're doing to make it produce a lot more currently and residually and, and you want to do it at a level of preeminence where you are nobly contributing the most because we are rewarded in our life in direct proportion to the problems we solve and the opportunities we make possible for others. And it's a sort of a, an aggregation, but if you can grasp that, then you, 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 you will hold yourself to a higher standard. Yeah. I um I always remember John Maxwell who wrote the book 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. I said to John, what was the, one of the most impactful issues that came along in your life? And he said to me, when my mentor, he said I was about 21, my mentor asked me the question, he said, John, what's your plan for self-improvement? And he said, I didn't have one. And I think what people get for hanging out with people like you, Jay, is the good chance to improve. And I think that's the most important contribution people like you have made to entrepreneurs of the world. I thank you for joining me on the program. Oh, my pleasure. I hope that this has the, uh, the effect of challenging them to challenge themselves. Thank you. Well, that was Jay Abraham. If you want to learn more, just go on the internet. There's so much stuff about Jay and he is a very insightful uh, guy when it comes to business. Um, now, for those people out there who didn't know, uh, yes, we are a financial planning business. Uh, it's switzeradvisory.com.au. A lot of people uh, have been surprised to learn that we are a financial planning business. I guess I've never really pushed it because lots of people have came come to us anyway. But over the years, I realized that people are really happy to know that we're doing financial planning. So if you need some help in building wealth, just go to switzeradvisory.com.au and our number, simple one, 1300 Switzer. 
So joining me on the program is Chris Hulls, who's the co-founder and CEO of a really interesting business called Life360. Now, this is a US-based business, but it's listed on the Australian stock market, which is a really interesting story. And in recent times, um, a very famous uh, business family name, namely the Zuckerberg uh, name, Randy Zuckerberg, sister of um, Mark of Facebook fame, has joined the board of Life360 and the stock market locally liked hearing that news. So to talk about the company, where it's going and um, the, the recent developments, we have Chris Hulls and he's, as I say, CEO and co-founder of the business. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Chris, let's just position you and the business um, Life 360, when did it start? Where did the idea come from? We have been around for over a decade now. We were literally one of the first smartphone apps, period. We were one of the apps that launched on the Android platform way back in 2008 or nine. It's so long, I don't even remember the exact dates. The idea came from Hurricane Katrina a few years before that, which was a big natural disaster here in the U.S., where families had a really tough time reconnecting. The whole thing was a mess. And my idea was very much in response to what I viewed as the government's very inept push to do what they called use technology to help families reconnect after major emergencies. But the extent of it was literally PDF forms you would download from a website and write down your emergency contact information. They tell you to get scissors and cut it out and put it in your kid's backpack so they'd know where to go. Mm. And this was pre-smartphone, but even going back then, this was way after paper times. We had SMS, we had all this infrastructure. So the idea was how about creating a way using this new emerging location and smartphone technology, which when the idea happened, it was actually Blackberry days. Why can't we do something that's truly using tech to help families reconnect? So that was the Genesis. We very quickly realized that we were onto something much bigger and we, we moved away from just being about these big disasters to really daily value and communication and building a sense of togetherness and broader safety. But that was the zeitgeist and the idea uh, many years ago. Mm. So where, where were you? Were you a typical Silicon Valley guy just like the, the television show, Silicon Valley, walking around looking for an idea, living in unusual houses, this hoping is, for a venture is, capitalist. Sure. I, I have been – it's both. Mm. So maybe it's a claim to fame out here. I'm actually from Silicon Valley. I grew up uh, about an hour north of San Francisco, and I was born about a mile down the street from our office. So I'm a true local, and I did go to Berkeley, which is one of the schools which is known for – pumping out quite a number of entrepreneurs. Where I'm very different though is I wasn't a computer geek. I was in the military after high school. I was on a track to do finance. My, my undergrad degree was actually a finance degree. And my first job after college was at Goldman Sachs. And I did a, a summer analyst program in the investment banking department. And I did not want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm happy to share that story a little bit. So I'm half insider, half outsider. Yeah. And it does follow through to us being on the ASX where we have done some things very much by the venture capital playbook and others we've beaten uh, the drum to our own tune. Yeah. So w what what made you change? Like you were not wanting to be an entrepreneur, but you ended up being one. What, what changed you? Sure. So my reason for not wanting to be an entrepreneur wasn't because I wasn't entrepreneurial. I was the, the kid with the lemonade stand hustling and starting businesses from a very early age. I, I sold thousands of Beanie Babies on AOL classifieds in the 90s and started a satellite dish business in high school. So in that sense, I was always entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. But it was my family journey where my dad was also an entrepreneur and went from doing pretty well when I was younger but never hitting it big and, and actually financially struggling a little bit when I was older. And I didn't want that. And I, I wanted security. Both my parents are immigrants. And that, that was just a very stressful time. And investment banking is about the, the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of taking risk. You, mm. you get in the system, you, you work your butt off, you meet some very smart people, and you're, you're, you're sort of guaranteed to make it, make it up the ladder. 
So I had that option in front of me and what changed was, was sheer dumb luck. Good luck, bad luck. I think good luck now because it's been a while. It's all worked out. Right. I did a summer at Goldman after I graduated. You normally do that when you're still in college. And it's because I had a goal, which was to go to the South Pole. And I wasn't a scientist. Mm. And so I got hired to be a dishwasher at the South Pole research station after college. And on my physical to go to the South Pole which was just a couple of weeks after my summer at Goldman ended, the doctors found a tumor in my neck and it looked quite bad for a while. And it could have been what would have been an untreatable type of cancer. Fortunately, they were completely wrong. And after a few months of hell and unknown, they said, well, you're fine. Go back to what you were doing. (laughs) And clearly I was about as happy as you can be to hear that news And along the way, I also applied to business school and was fortunate to get into Harvard for their MBA program. And when people think you have uh, some very bad type of cancer, everyone's very nice and very generous to you. And so Harvard was kind enough to give me a deferral to that, given what was going on for me. So I went all of a sudden from having what could have been this life-threatening issue to being completely fine with all this time on my hands And I had done the business plan for Life360 when I was at school in Berkeley. And well, I had all this time on my hands. And so I said, well, I got something that was an interesting idea. Why not give it a go? Worst case, I go to to grad school at Harvard, which is not too bad of a consolation prize. Mm. So uh, one thing led to another and and here we are. Uh, I still have not gone to the South Pole because I couldn't go after that physical for obvious reasons. So my, if, if we get the big exit, I'm just going to pay my way to go down there, which I can now afford, which is great. Uh, I don't think I'll do the dishwasher thing after all, but that was the, that was that odd stroke of fate. If you, if you, if you're spiritual, you might think it was, was fate. Uh, I don't know if I go there, but I certainly, it was certainly a a very unexpected change and I would have been an investment banker otherwise. Yeah. So, what happened to the tumor? Was it just a, a bad uh, initial uh, analysis? The short answer without getting very technical is they thought it was the type of a tumor that they were wrong. When they got it out, it was very encapsulated. And they said, good news, we got the whole thing. We got it really early. Good thing you had a, a random physical and that was that. Yeah, great. Okay. So here you are um, starting a, a business that you uh, started thinking about, and I presume you did a, a paper of some kind on Life 360 when you're at Berkeley. Yep. Why did you do that? Like, why did you think that families needed something like this, or was it was it family oriented then, or was it more emergency? Uh, it was. It was always family oriented, with a thesis that it's the parents that really worry about their kids, and if you go to Maslow's hierarchy: food, water, shelter, safety, security those are very primal fears, which are innate and universal. Mm. And as I mentioned, I'm I'm half a Valley insider, half a Valley outsider. And because I wasn't one of these uh, computer nerds in the, in the cool kids click or the maybe not cool kids click the nerd click. I, I was more interested in looking at areas that seem untapped. And it was the era of social networks for everything where Facebook was just getting huge and there were dozens, if not hundreds of Facebook clones for different groups launching. And so I thought, Hey, instead of just trying to build a product for me, what if I can get inside the psychology of what has been a very overlooked segment? Because the, the Valley cliche, which has a lot of truth to it is you get these young guys who they don't need any money. They can live, they can live in closets, which I literally did. I lived in a closet for a year and I had no money living off $700 a month in the beginning. But I thought, I'm just going to do something that's for a different segment, and I'm going to be a little bit more arm's length, and I can recognize an opportunity in a bit of a go-against-the-grain sort of way. Because a lot of investors actually will say, I'm only going to invest in founders who can empathize with the problem themselves, because it's very hard to build a product for a category of which you have no real connection. And now I have two kids, I'm married, so I, I am getting closer to our target segment, but at the mm. time I was 
a guy in my earlier mid twenties that uh, I would be the last person you would expect to be doing a mom app. And in fact, there were a number of investors who passed on us because of how could this, this single guy know what's going to make moms tick. Mm. Okay. So it's probably right now for people listening for you to explain what Life360 actually does. What, are, you know, what is the demand that it's, it's um, satisfying and what are the, the main deliveries of Life360? Let me answer that in two ways. I'll give a very just tactical, non-visionary explanation yep. of what the core app does today. And then I'll talk about where we're building and why we called the company Life360 in the first place because we've always had this 360 degree vision of being much more than an app and protecting you on the go, daily peace of mind, physical safety. And that's really what we're trying to expand into. But if you look at the core app now, the way I hate describing it, but it's an easy way of just making it click, it's take Apple, find my friends and put it on steroids, a much better app with a ton of features specifically for family members. So it goes way beyond just location sharing to doing how are you driving, alerts when people get to homework or school, even little things that are hugely powerful, like telling you if your kid's battery is low, because a lot of parents are worried about losing that connection. And now we're laying it, layering it on with a whole host of additional features around what we call our, our family membership, which is a subscription offering that takes a lot of existing security type products and offers them for a much lower price within our mobile app. So things like roadside assistance, crash detection with emergency dispatch, now identity theft protection, stolen phone protection, on-demand medical disaster or travel assistance from our trained agents. It's something that the idea is, if you sign up for Life360, you don't have to worry about all these things that as a parent or a family organizer that you'd normally be stressing out about if you were using other products, you'd have to buy 10. Now just come and you have us. And where we want to expand is take this really large user base, 25 million plus users and counting, and use this trusted relationship we have to offer them other products and services, things like insurance, things like eventually home security, elder care, track your pets, very natural add-ons to this big user base and build a far better user experience because we're natively mobile first and the millennials are now becoming parents aging into our category. They're looking to the phone and we can really disrupt a lot of these legacy players in the space. Yeah, so... Yeah, so in a sense, you, you're becoming like a, a parental risk management service. In some ways, yes. But the thing that sometimes gets missed is just how useful we are day to day. Mm. So if you think of your interactions with your family, when you're not under the same roof as them, yeah. we're all about when you're not with your family, which is why COVID has been a little bit frustrating for us because everyone's stuck with them 24 seven. Mm. But when you're not with your family, think about how many of the interactions you have throughout the day are all tied to location. Where are you? One of the carriers put out a few years ago is literally the most common text message sent. Mm. So yeah. we can completely replace that. We're not trying to be this WhatsApp competitor or messenger replacement, but these times you need to check in on someone, see how far away they are. You're trying to meet up with them, know how far away they are, know when dad's getting home for dinner. These are all things that we essentially have automated away and it becomes daily glue where you get these alerts where Chris got to the office, I got home, my wife left the gym, whatever. And it becomes so ingrained that even dogs will remember the sound of the alerts that they get and run to the door because they know that, that their owner's home. So it's, it becomes extremely habitual and part of the daily family workflow. And the, the emergency and safety features are layered on top of that. And, and going back to that initial vision, when we realized we could be so much bigger, it was that we did have this daily practicality, which really drives our growth and usage. Yeah. And, and Chris, I know in America uh, in particular, because there are so many states and there's so many different places people can work, families do get broken up a lot um, more significantly than, say, in Australia. So in Australia, for example, you might be closer to your parents, your brothers and sisters, and they can become a, a part support system. But in, in the US, and I think, I think for even in Australia, younger generations, they're moving away from their family uh, families as well. But the fact that you need a support system that which not might not be satisfied by your family really makes a service like Life360 um, more and more valuable over time. Yeah, exactly. And then as we've grown, you can have multiple circles, which are family groups. So people will have circles with their extended family members and it's not used nearly as much. But when I go see my 
cousins who live 3000 miles away. We're in a circle and I can see my aunt and uncle and just an easy way for us to coordinate and meet, meet up, which is part of why we have this lock-in effect that we are by far the biggest player in this space. And once your family's on board, your extended family's on board, it's an extremely sticky product. Yeah. Now, uh, some people will be wondering why you listed on the Australian stock market, but not the US stock market. Sure. So it was interesting timing and also an interesting set of fortuitous events. I'll, I'll share the backstory because it's a funny one is I, I met our first outside angel investor, James Singh, who is now the founder and uh, partner at uh, Carthona Capital. I met him when he was in the US working on his own startup very randomly. And he first put in 25,000 bucks into the business over 10 years ago. So he became a very close investor and friend and now board member. And when we were looking at fundraising options going back three plus years ago now, monetization was going really well. We had ticked a lot of the boxes that said this can be a really exciting business. We were still early at the time from US listing standards. I think we started this process when we, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but probably 20 million or so in revenue, maybe honestly less. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you could not go public in the US until you had at least 100 million of revenue, which we're getting within striking distance of now. And, and now we have SPAC mania. And if that were a thing back then, we probably would have just done a SPAC and been public here. But what we really liked about the ASX option was that this was a way of doing a late stage financing round without having to layer on more and more investor preference, uh, without giving a path to earlier investors to get liquidity because we, we were not an overnight success. We had a number of years just waiting for the market to catch up. So we really liked the ASX pitch, which was instead of doing a series D or E in the US with private investors, with all the baggage that private rounds come from, in particular, uh, the preference stack. And for, for people who are not aware of what a preference stack is, it's essentially who gets paid out and exit. And so you mm -hmm. get a lot of these private companies with huge dollars in, huge headline valuations, but essentially the, the investors have a claim to all that money plus some as these preference stacks add up. So being public very much democratizes that capital structure and everyone's in the same boat. Yep. So valuations are a little bit lower because of that for obvious reasons. If I'm an investor, I'm going to be willing to pay a higher price when I have these protections, then it causes a lot of other issues. So being public was something that's exciting for us. We couldn't have done it in the US at the time. And so it was a great way of becoming public when we didn't have that option locally here. Yeah. Now, if I remember rightly, really the the full services, the the gold standard services of Life360 are products for America. In Australia, you're, you're really taking baby steps, aren't you? Very good point. In Australia, you will not get this whole membership experience. You are very much getting a pure location experience. It's a little more than just pure location because you get driver reports and how your family members are driving. You get the real-time speed. You get a lot of the alert features, but you're not getting the, the broader offering. So for people using it in Australia, where we do have hundreds of thousands of customers, they're getting a very stripped-down version. So I'd encourage people from an investor standpoint, if they'd like to get a sense of the business, you can download the app and, and get that base layer, but you're not going to see the, the things that are really driving our revenue and, and monetization and, and broader brand awareness than that you were getting in the US because we are so differentiated from generic location apps. Yeah. Okay. So um, what has been the impact of the coronavirus on the growth of the company? So it slowed it down quite a bit. If you go back to March, April, whenever those early waves were, our user numbers fell off a cliff. It was, it was uh, pretty devastating because people were just not leaving the house. You were not letting your family members out of your sight and people just hunkered down. Mm. So we thought we were going to be in for a pretty rough year, but we've turned it all around. So we, we came out this year growing on the majority of our key metrics in particular in our key US home market. So revenues up in uh, 30 plus percent, I think in that range, our user numbers are back to growth. And one silver lining of the pandemic was we were cash flow break even for two back-to-back -back quarters, which was a concern for investors where we had talked about we're only burning cash because we're investing in growth. And 
we long believed that we could turn off some of that marketing and we would prove that we could be profitable. I wouldn't say that we wanted to do that because we preferred to be able to profitably buy users as we were doing because we have a, a good annuity value from them. But the pandemic showed the business is very resilient. We had very, very little paid user churn. So even in the doldrums, when this was a, everyone was so spooked early in the year, users were really sticking with us and our marketing channels were very much impacted and remain impacted, but we were able to prove what we had long said, which is we can turn that spigot on or off at any point in time. And that that did, I, I certainly believe and hope gave investors a lot of confidence that the business is not going anywhere and that the concerns around cash management in general, you don't have to worry about us because we've, we've shown very much definitively now how we can run the business in difficult times. Yeah. So, so is it fair, because in Australia, and I'm sure it's the case in, in America, you know, people are looking at the stock market and they're saying, well, these companies were stay-at-home beneficiary companies and these companies over here will be reopening beneficiary-type companies. So really, you're going to be a, bene a beneficiary of the reopening trade as opposed to the stay-at-home trade. Exactly. And I, I don't think we were on either extreme spectrum. So mm. if you take on one extreme, you have DoorDash and home delivery, which it was a, a gift from the heavens to have this pandemic. And clearly mm. no one wanted it, but it hypercharged their businesses. Yeah. On the flip side, you have the restaurants who lost all their revenue or the airlines. We were neither of those. So mm. it was absolutely a headwind and a negative but it's not like there's huge necessarily pent up demand. So I think basically this, how I look at it, this was a year that was more of a pause and we are going to have a, a, a tailwind for sure in my mind, because people are much more acutely focused on safety and security now because the pandemic was so disconcerting in so many ways. What did the December quarter look like, um, Chris? December was solid. So we're, we haven't released full year results, but we did release our 4C and, and the, the cash flow statement, some numbers, and we are returning to growth. So growth in the US, and we had in particular uh, good growth in Australia, where you guys have clearly done a much better job of managing the pandemic, where I think we had 15% quarterly growth in the Australia region. So if that's- Mem You're talking that, about membership, are you? Uh, from a free user standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and your US membership launch, how'd that go? That went great. So we now are so much more than this niche offering. So we went from just offering premium services around driving to now having this much broader membership that I mentioned earlier, which lets us for the first time in our long history, truly live up to our name because we always had this vision of offering this much broader suite of services. And, and one thing just to, to jump on, on, on a topic that I know is often comes up to investors who are not familiar with the product is, hey, why would I pay so much money for an app? Because we are, from an app standpoint, we're not cheap. We're between five and $20 a month. And so sure, for an app, that's very expensive. But if you look at what we're offering, the premium services are actually very comparable to much more expensive brick and mortar services. So as an example, one thing I've done with investor groups in Australia is round a table, show of hands, who here signs up for NRMA? And I usually get anywhere between 25 to 50% of people saying, yeah, I pay for NRMA. And so then I highlight in our app, you're getting everything you're getting with NRMA plus a whole lot more for a lower price. Mm -hmm. So if you don't benchmark our price as an app, but actually benchmark it to the subscriptions that people are paying for some of the services in our membership, we are significantly cheaper. And so if you take our, our platinum tier, which has all the features I mentioned, we're, we're over 90% cheaper than what it would cost to put these services together outside of our bundle. Yeah. So from that standpoint, it's an extremely, extremely cheap product and we're able to offer it so inexpensively because we don't have to pay to grow our users. We don't pay for infrastructure. We, we, we get the benefits of growing like a software company, which is we only have 200 people supporting 25 million users. It's very, very cost-effective and we can roll that all into our, our products that we offer to our customers and offer what is that great deal. Okay. Big news over here and it affected your share price was when we found out that you had a new director, uh, Randy Zuckerberg, who is the sister of Mark uh, of Facebook fame. Uh, what's the, the, the thinking behind that? Sure. So 
what we appreciate with Randy is she's been aware of the company for a long time. She has a current passion about working with families and technology and how it's used. She's a mother herself. So she understands where family tech is going. And she said she sees Life360 very much like Facebook back in the 2007, 2008 time period where people were still saying, this is just a college social app. How can this really be a big thing? It's, this is where people just go and poke each other and send pictures. Most people at the time did not realize how generationally impactful Facebook would be. And it was a time where Facebook actually wasn't growing very much because they realized they had to break out of the college market. So Randy similarly sees how it's very easy to dismiss Life360 as this location tracker, which in and of itself, it could be a widely used utility, but is that really a generational business? No, but what is a generational potential in business is this broader offering around being the glue by which families get through the day and then access this whole other range and suite of services. She sees the potential for that. So it was a very natural fit and it was in line with her personal passions. And one thing led to another and we were very excited to get her on the board. And while we're, we obviously were already believers in that story, having someone who was one of the very first employees at Facebook and uh, clearly an insider in to one of the most successful businesses of all times with a lot of parallels to us, is great validation because Randy doesn't isn't doing this because she needs a job. Clearly, mm-hmm. she's doing this because she sees the potential impact that we can have on the world and how we could be in the next couple of years at a real inflection point. You got um, tell us about what's happening with your Google partnership. Sure. So Google has a product line called Google Assistant, and the idea with Google Assistant it's a voice based assistant that will help you with a whole number of things from simple Alexa stuff like playing music to getting directions, to getting sports scores, to showing pictures of your family, whatever. Part of that is also a very nascent part of that group or sector emerging, which is screen-based assistance. So some people are unfamiliar with these, but they're like the, like Alexa's or Google homes but with a screen on them. And so we do have an Alexa integration where you can say, Alexa, ask Life360, where's my family? But it's all voice, so not a really good mechanism for that. With Google Assistant and their screens, the, a funny note is I said Alexa, my Alexa's just us. <laughs> so, um, if you hear that? Yeah, we can. That's good. And it's, it's actually telling me where my family is right now. <laughs> you want to listen to it. Asha does not have a current location available. So there's, there's a, I will not say the A word again because I'm going to get get the device yelling at me. Uh, that was unintentional, but that I actually gave unintentionally a real-time demo of what the Google product does, yeah. but it does it on a screen. Mm. So if you are at home, this is a little bit cliche, but there's some accuracy to it. If mom or dad's cooking dinner, their hands are messy. They want to be able to say, where is everybody? They can now just say, Hey Google, where's my family? Mm. And you don't need to say life 360. We've become that source of truth for family location for Google. Okay. So it's a pretty big deal long-term because it's Google saying, okay, we realize Life360 has this hub for the family that nobody else has. And they have Google Maps with location sharing, but it's great validation that we're something very different. And so we do work on all Google Assistant devices, but the real holy grail use case is seeing that map in front of you without having to pull out your phone. Maybe you're, you're dealing with kids in the living room, whatever you're doing, you're going to see that map with ETAs right there on the screen. Mm. So in the short run, this is not going to drive any real user volume because it's a very, very nascent platform. But it shows that as these new platforms emerge, we've staked out the most valuable piece of real estate that we can think of. And we're getting this validation from these giants. Mm. And with Google in particular, we are the source of truth. So that's that's very exciting for us and and validating that the, the big dogs are looking at us in this way. Yeah, it's uh, the first time in my life that I actually now understand why companies like Samsung are creating fridges with uh, computer screens on it. I couldn't see the, the relevance of that until you gave me the, the idea of a mum at home cooking with her hands covered in, say, 
flour and whatever and they want to know where their kids are and they could turn to their fridge, look on the screen and see where their kids are. So well done. Exactly. And, and so we, there is a second wave here of these devices where, yeah, there were the Samsung smart fridges. They're still there. But we were looking into this space six years ago and, and a big story of our company has been a little bit too early to these trends. But what I'm excited about now is well, you have Amazon, you have Google, you have Facebook with their video platform. You now are going to soon have these devices that, you, that are ubiquitous. Mm. A Samsung smart fridge with a screen is many thousands of dollars. Google and Amazon are, are trying to give these things out like candy. And I think we'll have a world, it's not going to be tomorrow, but every kitchen is going to have one of these smart screens right there. Every living room is going to have one of these screens right there in the same way that you can see just how quickly the, the voice-based devices grew. You can see where the world is going. Yeah, without doubt. So tell us, in terms of the company, where do you think your company's going? What's the broad overview for it? So continuing to grow membership, continuing to grow users, and really owning that brand in a much bigger way. When you think of families, you think Life360. And we already have pretty tremendous brand awareness. It's up in the 30% plus range in the U.S. of parents who are aware of us in the U.S., growing very quickly. And they're also understanding that we do so much more than location. So our view is we can really become this generational brand starting in the U.S. and then over time expand to other regions with our full offering because the underlying pains and needs of families are global. There are going to be some regional differences, but in terms of safety of my children, getting through the day running a family, a family in the U.S. is really no different than a family in Asia or Australia or anywhere. So our belief is we can truly become a, a global business in a much more meaningful way. Okay, Chris, it's a great story. Um, we wish you a lot of luck. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll watch with interest the way the company's going, and I guess the Australian Stock Exchange will um, tell us that story. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. Take care. And that was Chris Hulls. I should add, the guys at uh, Life360 have advertised on our website, you know, because they are a listed business. They want to be uh, observed and known by people who are interested in, in stocks on the stock market. But I just thought the backstory of Life360 and the fact that uh, Mark Zuckerberg's sister is now on the board became was an interesting story in its own right. So um, if you want to know more about Life360, yeah, just go and look, go on the internet. You'll see plenty of information about the company. I think the company will really do well in the US and one day it'll come here. But in the US in particular, I think the, the offering is very, very much American. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Britain time! Britain time! <laughs>